This is Business of Home. I'm Dennis Scully, and welcome to The Thursday Show. Later on, I'll be speaking with Rowan Blacker of Pookie about the rise of rechargeable lighting. But first, we're going to catch up on the news, including a huge shift in global manufacturing, a look at whether Apple's new headset will matter for designers, and why rumors about the death of drapery have been greatly exaggerated. To do all that, I'm joined by Business of Home's executive editor, Fred Nicolaus. Hi, Fred. Hi, Dennis. How's it going? Pretty good. How are you doing, Fred? <laughs> I'm good. I'm recovering from a, a little bout of strep throat, but uh, I told the doctor I, I got to get back in time. Got to be on the Thursday show, <laughs> exactly. darn it. I have to discuss the news of the design industry, so do whatever you got to do, Doc. Legal or illegal. <laughs> uh, but before we get into uh, the real news, we should look back on uh, Monday's episode, an interview with uh, L.A. architect Ron Radziner of very famous firm Marmel Radziner. What do you think, Dennis? It was such a great conversation on, on so many levels. One of the many things that I loved about Ron's whole mindset was he he largely views this whole thing as a bit of a dark comedy. Yes. <laughs> so much so much going wrong every day in the in the many projects that they are both the general contractor on and the architect of record. And so he he says that it's uh, it, it's challenging sometimes to to stay optimistic, but he but he feels that the process of of building it, it itself and and doing something that is inherently optimistic and positive about the future is is sort of what keeps them going. So I thought that was so interesting. Yeah, word to the wise, unless you were very successful, do not advertise your services as working with me is like a dark comedy. <laughs> That's not <laughs> usually a winner. But I thought it was a great conversation, very open. I love how he talked about how the firm does everything. You know, they make furniture, they make jewelry, they do all kinds of things. And it's really interesting to get an insight from someone who like touches every part of the project. thought that was really cool. I also thought out, you know, we talk a lot about sustainability and sometimes it seems a little bit abstract, but when you're working in LA on these homes on the side of Malibu Canyon, like on land that may not exist in 20 years, it's a very real consideration. And I love the kind of like realness he brought to that discussion. So I liked it on a couple different levels. I, I agree. And, and very candidly at several points said, and, and should we be building here? <laughs> yes, Probably <yeah>. not. <laughs> but until someone comes along and tells us we can't, we're going to. <laughs> uh, so yeah, no, no, no. Very, very interesting. And, and there were a lot of good, uh, good stories and, and, and just fun to, to get a chance to, to talk with him. So a, a highly enjoyable episode. Okay, we're going to get into the news in just a moment. But first, we're going to take a quick break. This podcast is sponsored by Leloy, which is celebrating its 20th anniversary this year with the debut of its best collection yet, the Heritage Collection. Two years in the making and requiring the invention of new craft techniques, the Heritage Collection creates a power-loomed rug that looks and feels like a true antique. Visit laloirugs.com to learn more about Heritage and other new collections. That's L-O-L-O-I rugs.com. And follow them on Instagram and TikTok at laloirugs. Every time we do a new project and something new comes up and we're like, oh, put that in our process. I don't do a discovery call. It's like, you either want me or you don't. In this industry where it's just like, boom, 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 people are coming at you, subcontractors, contractors, vendors. If you're going to be an interior designer, you are a salesperson. If tomorrow the ultimate, most wonderful client came along, that would be great. But if it doesn't happen tomorrow, I'm still going to keep working on the things that I have today. And I'm happy with those things. 
Hi, I'm Caitlin Peterson, the editor-in-chief of Business at Home and the host of Trade Tales. Every other week, I speak with a designer to explore the challenges, pivots, and perspective shifts that come with growing an interior design firm. We talk about how to get billing right and how to build trust, about the difficult clients and the difficult employees, about all of the ways that entrepreneurship will test you, and also all of the ways that it will leave you inspired. To listen, search for Trade Tales wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, we're back. First up, Fred, a big one, a big shift in global trade. Yes, well, last week, for the first time in 20 years, Mexico outranked China as America's top source of imports. Uh, the data reflects recent supply chain trends towards nearshoring and, this is a good one, friendshoring, aka companies <laughs> looking to manufacture in countries that are either closer or more politically friendly. Uh, I love how even supply chains have uh, micro trends. That's kind of a kind of a fun little uh, <laughs> side insight there, Dennis. What? Why is this happening? Why? Why are we seeing this news? It's fascinating to to see what has happened really since since COVID. How we discovered how much we relied on China and and on these Asian supply chains, and uh, we had a lot of political concerns around China as well. So there's a there's a host of different issues that all seem to be coming together to to make people want to make pretty pretty drastic changes to how they are supplying product and Mexico seems to be one of the major beneficiaries of this mindset shift. Yeah, and that's particularly true in furniture. I mean, it's it's hard to overstate what percentage of the world's furniture is made in China and Vietnam and Mexico even making a dent in that number is is really significant. I know every time I look at an industry trade publication like Furniture Today, there's another CEO talking about wanting to expand, uh, you know, their um supply chain and manufacturing in Mexico. I think we should be cautious not to overstate this. I mean, uh, uh, there were some numbers they're from 2021 but i think they reflect the the bigger disparity here which is that uh mexico's furniture exports were 1.9 billion in 2021 that's compared to 9.1 billion from vietnam and china so i don't know what the numbers are today but there's there's still a huge gulf in terms of the volume that uh, asia puts out so th- this reflects all imports to the us not just furniture no no it's it's a great point and interestingly we're going we're going to be talking about inflation in in just a moment, but it's important to remember that part of the reason that inflation came down in the United States as dramatically as it did has been our trading relationship with with China. And so many household products just came down in price so dramatically over the last 30 years because of what we were able to do manufacturing-wise overseas. And so this is great news about a closer-to-us partner, uh, but the pricing difference between uh, trading with Mexico versus trading with China uh, is yet to fully be seen, and, and I think that that impact is is going to be pretty dramatic. So stay tuned. Yeah, I mean, that's really the interesting issue here is that while it seems good for the U.S. to manufacture stuff closer to the U.S., because labor in Mexico is more expensive than it is in China in many cases, is that going to send you know the, the price of goods uh, up? But maybe companies are making the calculation that the stability, the ease of shipping, the speed will all make up for you know, perhaps an uptick in pricing. I, I think this is very meaningful, and, and, I, and I think it looks like it has real traction, real momentum. I don't want to turn this into a political conversation, but 
another reason that so many people moved in this direction was this tariffs conversation, which looks like it's going to be uh, another big conversation come come November. Uh, and, and the tariffs are, were very meaningful and, and did change the dynamic of trade with China in, in a meaningful way. Yeah, completely. And I mean, I think like in looking at how this news will trickle down to the life of the average designer, if this trend continues and more and more furniture is made in Mexico, it probably will get a little bit more expensive. Um, I think that's kind of the, you know, the simplest way to look at this and you'll be able to get it sooner. I mean, of course, a lot of designers are, you know, sourcing more, uh, you know, domestically made furniture already, but for the pieces that come from overseas, more of them will be made in Mexico. You know, it'll be faster and more expensive, I think are the two bigger takeaways if this holds. But you know, it's, it's really interesting. I, I think like, with news that's this big, it's hard to say, oh, this is good or this is bad. It's, it's such a sweeping change. But I do think, you know, it's time to shuffle the deck on manufacturing or furniture. I mean, I feel like every week that goes by, there's another article that talks about how, you know, furniture quality is so much worse than it was 10 years ago. We've spoken to people who write these articles. Everyone seems to be in agreement about that. If we can get furniture that's, you know, has a longer shelf life, can get to us quicker and maybe cost a little bit more, I think that's a good thing. Uh, absolutely. Agreed. Okay, we teased inflation just a moment ago, and now we're going to talk about it some more. <laughs> just what people want. Just when we thought all the rising prices were cooling down and it was safe to go back to the grocery store, unfortunately, inflation is rearing its head again. In January, the CPI, that's the Consumer Price Index, clocked in at 3.1%. That's higher than the 2.9% that economists were expecting. Fred, what are your thoughts? I love the concept of we teased inflation. <laughs> we knew you couldn't get enough of this. Um, we knew you wanted to hear more about inflation. I, I have some thoughts about what this will mean, but I actually don't understand why this happened because it seems like all the big brains thought it would be low and it was a little bit higher. So where'd they get it wrong? The unemployment is very low, as we've talked about on previous shows. And so people are out there spending a lot of money. And as long as people are spending a lot of money, guess what? Uh, inflation is probably going to stay pretty strong because uh, people are buying a lot of stuff. And that's really, at the end of the day, what, what is central to, to all of this. Prices have come down dramatically from when inflation was over 9%. And it's remarkable to see that steep decline. But getting, getting to that 2% target that the Federal Reserve has is going to be a, a neat trick indeed. Yeah. And I mean, I think like, you know, the, the obvious impact of this is, is on the housing market because because, you know, everyone is, as we've talked about ad nauseum, is waiting for the Fed to lower rates, which will make mortgages more affordable, which will make people rush back into a, a, a still pretty frozen market. And so the thinking, at least from what I've read, is that because inflation is still not where they want it to be, the Fed's going to put off lowering rates until at least the summer. So we may not see that spring rush into the housing market. I think the good news is that as we talked about the other week, and as I know you spoke about with Jonathan Miller, it seems like the market is thawing a little bit even without a Fed rate cut. So maybe there'll be cracks in the ice and uh, that drop in rates will just uh, kick off in a good avalanche. I don't know. I don't know if there's a word for that. But yeah. <laughs> well, again, as you say, it, it's just another reminder that this is a slower than many people would like process. It's very gradual. It reminds us that down isn't guaranteed. Uh, there, there, there certainly started to be a, a group of people who worried, what if inflation just starts to creep back up? And maybe we're not finished lowering rates. I don't 
think that will be the case. Uh, but but nothing is nothing is assured, and and the Federal Reserve has to has to keep an eye on it to be sure. Yeah, and I also think it's a reminder for designers that. You know, inflation may have come down, but that doesn't necessarily mean that prices are coming down. A designer just the other day was telling me that, you know, their clients were saying like, well, inflation's coming down. Why aren't your prices? And it's like inflation is the rate of increase. You know, pri- pr- prices aren't going down. So I I think we are still getting used to, you know, uh, these numbers being higher than they were three or four years ago. They've cooled off, but they're not stable. As you just pointed out, they could go back up again. And there are still lingering effects of the fact that we did have this radical acceleration just a couple of years ago. So I guess uh, not out of the woods yet is sort of the takeaway here. Moving on, we're going to talk about <laughs> drapery news, Fred. <laughs> exactly. Well, a couple of weeks ago, we talked on the show about an article in The Atlantic, which pointed out that uncovered windows appeared to be a status symbol among wealthy homeowners. For this week's feature, BOH editor Caroline Burke begged to differ. She took a, a, took a second uh, look at the alleged death of drapery, and it seems that designers are not at all convinced. I got the feeling that when we talked about it in the first place, you weren't at all convinced either, Dennis. So is this, is this vindication <laughs> for you? Once again, I, I feel like the community has come together <laughs> and, uh, and, and found support around an issue that I am behind. Uh, before we get into Caroline's piece, Fred, why don't you remind us what the Atlantic article had to say, and then we can start shooting it down right, left, and center. <laughs> sure. Well, the, the Atlantic <laughs> article, I think it went by sort of a catchy headline of, sort of like, why rich people don't cover their windows or something like that. Very, very uh, clickbaity. <laughs> inflammatory headline, but I think the author was kind of drawing on both anecdotal evidence, which is that if you do walk through especially parts of Brooklyn where most writers live, uh, most <laughs> people don't cover up their their front windows in neighborhoods like Fort Greene or uh, Carroll Gardens. Um, and also just this, this study, which showed that people making uh, more than $150,000 are almost twice as likely to leave windows uncovered as those making much, much less. Um, the odd thing was that the study itself was from 2013, so that kind of made me think, well, maybe this guy needs to check out the most recent drapery numbers. Um, but it also, it felt a little bit like, you know, anecdotal evidence from one particular region. I think what I liked about Caroline's piece was that she talked to designers all over the country. And if you talk to, say, Texas designer Jen Showers, she's going to tell you draperies are in. And, Dal- and Dallas, <laughs> draperies are in. No, no question. And and you're absolutely right. I mean, I think the, the confusing part about that piece and, and, and nothing against the, the writer who worked on it, but as you say, that original research was done back in, in 2013, and actually several people in the industry reached out to me after we last talked about <laughs> it, <laughs> saying, that is a really old piece of data, and why is anyone talking about that? Uh, but I, I also think that it's very clear when you when you talk to a lot of designers that, uh, in fact, the window treatments are such an important part of pulling a project together, and uh, and that is um, that you might open things up to to show people the view of your lovely home, but that uh, but that window treatments are alive and well, and and perhaps perhaps they're a little bit more expensive or complicated than, yeah. than clients are, are used to, and that was certainly part of uh, what came up in the discussion in Caroline's piece. Well, yeah, and uh, there's two things there. I think one is that they have changed. I mean, we don't have the you know the ornate uh, drapery of, of the 1980s, but I think the designers have come up with like 
like clever other you know other clever ways to uh, you know incorporate fabric. I, w- one designer, I forget who, pointed out that you know it's it doesn't even have to be on the windows. You can make a beautiful wall hanging, and you know I've I've seen some incredible tented rooms in uh, show houses recently. I know that's not for everybody, but I think it's a very cool effect for the right client. Um, but yeah, the complexity of of window treatments I think is a really interesting thing because they are they're complicated, they're expensive, um, and I think that's why you have seen all of these businesses like Caroline spoke to the startup called uh, Everham, uh, more notably maybe the Shade Store, which is what they open a new location every 20 minutes or something like that. It's like they've they've (laughs) gone from a relatively small operation to this, you know, national giant. Uh, And I think they're capturing the fact that it is difficult for people to get, you know, to deal with the complexity of making choices and installing them. And I think that in some cases is what holds people back. There's all kinds of angles here. There's a cultural angle. I think it, you know, a closed window shade means something different in Dallas than it does in Brooklyn. And all of that is uh, very interesting. And Caroline delves into all of it in her piece. Yeah, no, 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 no question. And I, I think that you, you referenced tented rooms and so many designers, of course, have been sharing uh, many of the rooms from the Truman Capote feud show that is wildly popular with designers. And the fabric industry is, of course, hoping that everyone <laughs> will want tented rooms. They would love nothing more uh, because the window treatments, you know, are smaller than they than they used to be. To your point, and uh, they want to bring that look back. But I I do think, as you say, it, it's clear that in many parts of the country, uh, the window treatments are just as important as any other element in the house, and they are highly celebrated. And I'm glad about that. So I think we can put that whole issue to <laughs> now rest. That, now that Caroline about. has put the Atlantic in its place, I'm wondering who's next. <laughs> A New Yorker, New York Times, no one's safe. Exactly. Who else does Caroline have in her sights? <laughs> Speaking of having things in your sights, look how I did that, Fred. Uh, let's talk about... The Apple Vision Pro. Yes. Shall we? Let's do it. The future is now. Uh, last week, Apple unveiled its long-awaited AR VR headset, the Apple Vision Pro. Reviews so far have been mixed. Uh, I wrote an article for BOH this week about what it might mean for designers. Uh, before we get there, Dennis, we've both tried this thing out. Sadly, not together, but uh, we've both <laughs> gone into an Apple store and gotten a demo. Anyone can do it at this point, although their spots are difficult to book. Why don't you, what, what was your take? What was it like? What did you take away from the experience of getting the test? Well, I mean, you know, you use the word together and it's interesting because actually somebody comes, sits by your side, pulls up what you're about to see on their iPad, uh, fits you for the whole thing. In my case, it had to quickly scan my glasses to to have accurate lenses for me to, to look through. Um, and then they give you a quick tutorial about some of the very simple hand gestures and how you'll be using your eye as a as a cursor. And then basically the show begins and you are exposed to 3D images and you go into a recording studio, you go on to the field of a baseball game <laughs> where you're I mean, you're at first base in that in that scene in the game. I mean, it was it was spectacular to see and you could you could move multiple screens around, put them up on the ceiling, put them down on the floor. You could have fifty Fred and I like to have a lot of tabs yes, open when yes. we work and you could yeah. you could have windows all over the place. So I mean I, it was it was hard to be cynical 
or, or, or disappointed about the technology. But as you say, some reviewers were sort of so-so. Yeah, I was sort of surprised by the, the middling tone of the reviews as well. I was similarly sort of blown away. I mean, the fact that you're like controlling a computer by sort of tapping your fingers, you know, people make fun of that because it looks goofy from the outside. But I mean, think about that. You're controlling like a, a freaking computer just by tapping your fingers in, in thin air. It's pretty impressive. Uh, and the, the immersion of it is really incredible. I mean, you know, you're in this recording studio, as you mentioned, and Alicia Keys is like right there. And you're like, oh, I'm sorry, ma'am. Like it, it feels, you feel very in the moment. And I, I was completely blown away by the demo. I think the, the middling tone of the reviews, which is fair enough, is that there's a lot of speculation around who is this really for, you know, because it's really impressive, but is it more efficient than your computer? You know, it's what, what are we really going to use it for? Uh, and that's kind of what I looked at my, uh, at in my piece, but I'm curious, what do you think about that critique? Well, I mean, again, the technology is five minutes old and, and already we've had so many companies announce that they are making a product available for, for Vision Pro. Interestingly enough, the, the person that gave me a demo was also in the building and construction hmm. area. And so we had a whole conversation around how she could imagine using this on job sites and, and how much easier this was going to make it to, to take clients through changes that you wanted to make on site. Uh, and, and so, I mean, honestly, there were so many areas where I saw people in the home world being able to, to use this. And, and so I, I, I do think if it, it can catch on, and I think it's just as likely that it might not for, for reasons we can get into, but I, I, I think it could have a, a lot of benefits for our industry. Yeah, I mean, just to quickly recap, the the companies that have Vision Pro apps in our world are Zillow, Wayfair, Lowe's, this company called Planner 5D. So clearly people are sort of trying to jump on this bandwagon. Um, it's funny, a lot of the critiques have been, you know, at a, you know, a retail price of $3,500 for the base unit. The only people who can afford these are people who use it for their business and affluent people. And that's a critique, but I'm also thinking, okay, well, designers use it for their business and their clients are affluent people. So there's a nice synergy there. And I think that like, it's interesting because like having a VR headset in and of itself is, you know, these, these have been around for a long time, but because it's done by Apple, because it has Apple distribution, because it has sort of the Apple coolness to it, suddenly if it's not like, Hey, client, like, buy this random VR headset, put it in your house. I'll send you a file, which you then convert to this. Instead, if it's like, hey, we all have this because it's Apple, I'll just send it to you. Um, that just eases a lot of the friction of using it in the day-to-day process of, of your business. And I will say, I could imagine, like, looking at a home design, you know, through these glasses would be so much more immersive than even the biggest widescreen image you could present on on a on a regular monitor. So I, I do think we will see this used in the industry. It may take a while, but to me it seemed um pretty relevant. The, the real question is about I mean you mentioned we didn't do this together. It's not a together kind of yeah. thing. It's 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 very much uh you're in your own little world in this and you can certainly see the concern around, is this going to make some people who are already feeling somewhat isolated or cut off be 
uh, e- even more removed from, yes. the, yeah. from the world. Yeah. It's funny the the two re- the tenor of the two kinds of reviews I saw were like, "This is incredible, but who is it for?" And the other critique was, "This will destroy society," <laughs> just because it was you know everyone will spend all day inside of this machine. I don't think that's realistic at this point, simply because it is still a headset. It's hard to wear it. No, I, the demo is only half an hour long, but even so, it's it's impossible to imagine walking around with this all day. You'd also look ridiculous, and I think this is mostly an at-home gadget. So I think those concerns are a little bit overblown, but I will say that, like, you know, you spend... I wanted to go back into that world as soon as I left. I was like, take me back to Alicia Keys. Take me back to that baseball diamond, you know? I don't want to go back to my formal dining room to spend time with my family. I want to go back to Alicia. So I... That was the worry, yes. Fred, that you wouldn't want to go back to that formal <laughs> exactly. dining room. Exactly. So I don't know. I, I think it's overblown at the, at the present moment, but I think that's certainly something to think about. No, I agree. And, and I think the big takeaway, clearly it sounds from both of us, is that the technology is, is remarkable. And again, that it is, that it is the first iteration of this. Imagine how much better this is even going to get. Uh, it's it's hard for me to imagine that that people don't end up loving this this product and finding lots of ways to use it. All right, that's it for the news. But there's plenty more to check out on businessofhome.com, including a roundup of the best debuts from Shop Object and a primer on building a sustainable materials library. We'll be back in a minute, but first, a quick break. Demonstrating its commitment to healthy communities, the design industry, and the environment, Laloy recently launched Love Laloy. The three pillars of Love Laloy guide the company's efforts to create safe and responsibly made products through the supply chain, foster safe and loving homes, and remove barriers to design-oriented careers. Learn more at laloyrugs.com and follow them on Instagram and TikTok at laloyrugs for the latest news. Okay, and we're back. I'm joined today by Rowan Blacker, who is the founder of Pookie, an English lighting company that is coming to the States. And I'm delighted to have you. It was a pleasure to see you in the States just recently. Great to see you, Dennis. So glad to have you on. And I, I want to talk about lighting and and cordless lighting and and much of what you're doing as you come to the States. But I want to step back in time a little bit because you have such an interesting entrepreneurial career path and it seemed as if you 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 stepped into uh, the law for a short time if i recall perhaps you're I'm- right you're you're right well, i mean i'm i'm just a sort of impatient fellow really and and <laughs> that's and really I, what it is I, I i i keep changing i mean so it, it's interesting in in so much as it's been quite a lot of it and i and i seem to have done rather a lot of things strange enough i was a lawyer for not long i i realized quite quickly i was i was going to be a pretty crummy lawyer um but you got given these briefs you know these and, and you were expected to read three or four hundred pages over the course of an evening before before court the next day and it was like i can't do this yeah no, brutal. Um, or i can't do this satisfactorily so so i realized it, it, you know I, I i didn't really want to lead the life of a of, of a stressed out mediocre lawyer so i i i stopped that and i and i moved on and and, and since then i've largely been doing my own businesses yeah and and it seems like one of the businesses which I was fascinated about was I mean before there was DoorDash before there was Uber Eats there there was this incredible company that you built Deliverance if I recall I mean we we launched Deliverance I think in 
1996 and it was it was just so people understand it was a it was a food delivery company we honestly had no idea what the hell we were doing i mean i had been in the hospitality sort of catering world for a bit before then i'd i'd, I'd run a restaurant and a pub and so theoretically i had some sort of a clue about what i was doing our sort of strap line was cooked fresh delivered fast so we, we had we had a kitchen we had a thai section we had a chinese section we had an indian section we had a, a pizza section. We had a salad section. You know, we, we branched out into sushi. We had our, we we bought these fantastic sort of sushi robots. These machines <laughs> which were made the nigiri and the we had all sorts of stuff. It was it was it was obscenely complicated. It was you know in terms of a sort of baptism of fire into the world of business, we bit off a a, a major chunk of complexity there. Um, and as I say for. For the business, we had you know well over a hundred motorbikes burning around London. We had we had our own garage where we had three mechanics mending all the motorbikes, <laughs> which were constantly breaking. We cooked all the food from scratch. We we had our own call center, and I reckon we were feeding about fifteen hundred, sixteen hundred people a night out of there. But it, it was it was a kitchen hidden away. You know, wasn't wasn't on the high street. It was it was in a sort of warehousey type thing. We had say 40 motorbikes burning in and out of there feeding all the and, and people calling and people faxing in orders if i recall faxing <laughs> again the fax machine the fax machine whirring anyway it was it was called deliverance we had an absolute blast um and we ultimately sold the business um and 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 learned a hell of a lot it was it was it was a it was a wonderful seven years and we sold it pretty much seven years to the day we sold up you know it was just that's the way it happened. And, and um, yeah, deliverance was fun. Yeah, no, no, no. It, it sounds like an incredible experience. And as you say, you, you learned so much. Tell me how that leads to to another hilarious story of, of, of buying the, the rights to the URL sofa.com and, 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 build, <laughs> and building that business. We should tell that story. <laughs> well, okay. So, so we, Pat and myself, we, we, we determined that we wanted to do another business together. Um, um, because we had just sold deliverance, we had a a bit of a breathing space and we were sort of looking around and sort of scratching our head and thinking what industries look you know because it was an amazing time in history we were we were super lucky this was this was say 2005 the internet had just sort of kicked off i mean obviously kicked off a bit before then but but it was just beginning to come of age and there were just businesses everywhere you looked ripe for disruption or just doing it in a slightly different way and anyway our view after a while was was that um, the world of interiors and, and particularly sofas at that point mm. um, in the UK we had it was a very it was a very disjointed industry it was very sort of fragmented there were a few so sort of larger players um, none of them had embraced the web at all it was it was it was quite backward to be honest um, and, and and so we determined that we would get a really sort of on it name and 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 Pat business partner Pat comes to me in one evening and goes I think we can get sofa.com I think we can buy so the URL sofa.com so we called them up and go, hi, we, we understand or we think that you own the URL sofa.com. Uh, to which the guy who picks up the phone goes, yeah, we do. Yeah, 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 we, that, it belongs to us. He goes, well, look, we'd, we'd, we, we are interested, if, if you're interested in selling, we'd be interested to buy it. Um, and, and he goes, well, you know, everything's got a price, I guess. It's not technically for sale. And we go, well, if we were to buy it, what do you think you'd sell it to us for? Anyway, so we eventually got them to say, um, a million dollars <laughs> and it was like wow this is 205 you know a million dollars was 
decent yeah. sum of cash. I mean, we we pulled it down, and and he was you know sucking his teeth and this, and it took about six months, and we ended up on a figure of two hundred thousand dollars. So we we arranged to come over to New York. We got some flashy lawyers. You know, we we're going to do the deal. We we all signed the contracts. Everyone seemed to be happy, and the money was wired to what we thought at the time was the um, sofa company. Of course, what actually happened is the money was wired directly to this guy's personal account. Yes, he did work at the company, but he was not a director. Right. He was not entitled to do this. And he had sold arguably their greatest asset to us in a legally binding yeah. contract. Right. And, and, and we, and, 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 but of course, at the time, we didn't know this. Anyway, he then took his, his, his mistress off and had, you know, said, come on, come on, honey, we're off to South America. We're going <laughs> to We're leaving ball. the country. <laughs> and it wasn't until a few months later that we got this message that the deal was effectively fraudulent. But it turned out that because we did everything in good faith, it, was, it, it wasn't an issue. He eventually got apprehended. And, and we, we survived that one. Um, you know, we, we then ran that business for, for actually about another seven years, um, this, the, the famous seven-year itch. In, in the process of, of Sofa.com, how did, that, how did that whole business go? How did you come to feel about the, the interiors industry, which, as you say, can, can often be quite, quite splintered and, and divided? And, well, right? again, it, it, we, we entered a business about which we knew precisely nothing. Um, uh, you know, made all sorts of mistakes in the early days um, and, and, and were advised by various people to do things which you shouldn't have done. But we were incredibly lucky because the business just was a hit from day one. Mm. Um, and I remember, you know, selling, I think we sold a sofa amazingly on the, on the first day. Because we, we, you do all this, you do all this planning, preparation, you get the website ready, you do all the photography, everything, you know, got all the stock, everything's ready to go. And then one day you just go, right, you all look at each other and go, yeah, let's, let's turn it on, man. Let's see what happens. Right. And let's, let's start giving Google a bit of money so, that, so, that, so we can hopefully you know, encourage a bit of traffic to come to our website. And then, and then I, I mean, I didn't expect to get an order for a week or more, you know, because it's, it's quite a long consideration project, this. You know, people were not used to buying sofas online. No, that, and there was still all this skepticism that this would never even work, that you would never even be able to sell a sofa online. Oh, plenty of people were convinced yeah. that we were, we, were, we were nutters. I mean, we did have a <laughs> tiny showroom where people could come and, you know, sit on the sofa or try it. It was not particularly glamorous, should we say. This was at the start. But we sold a sofa on our first day and, I, and, and, and it grew and, and, it, and it, was, it was profitable very quickly because, because we were direct-to-consumer, because we didn't have an expensive showroom anywhere and, and we, were, we were pretty slight on staff. You know, it was, it was, you know, we didn't need to turn over so much money in order to, 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 to turn, a, you know, turn it into a profitable business. And it became a fantastic business and quite a strong brand. All sorts of people knew about it. And we had a wonderful time doing it. And of course, as with everything, well, you need to be a particular type of person. You become completely immersed in it. You become, you become obsessed about the product. The product. And then ultimately we, we sold it again because these businesses got to a point where I genuinely felt it was time for someone else to take control of the business. So I think it was the right time to sell the business, actually, when we did, which was, again, about seven years after we launched it. Right. Well, and, and often that's the mistake that so many founders make, is they, they don't know when to recognize that moment where they are better served turning the company over to, to somebody else to help run or, or to sell, in your case, or right? Yeah. I, I mean, I think so often founders, and, and I get it, you're so caught up in it, 
uh, it, it's hard to step back and say, look how big this has gotten and, and, and look look at how different well, I, this is. Look, there are obviously plenty of examples of, of founders who've, who've, who've started from right from the beginning and turned, them, turned their businesses into wonderful, huge, extraordinary sort of megaliths. And, and, sure. And, um, but equally, I think every founder needs to, have, you know, take that humility pill from time to time and realize that whilst they may have had this great idea and they may have given birth to this baby or whatever, the reality is there is always someone out there who's better at running it than you are. There just is. And you've got you've got to understand that. And if that means selling the business, that's one thing, or it might mean actually standing back from the business and, and, and handing it up, handing on to another team of, of people who've got relevant experience. And, and to a degree, that's, that's, to a degree, that's what I've done um, at Pookie, Pookie mm. Lighting, um, which, we're, which we're talking about. So I'm, I'm no longer, well, the CEO of the business and I've handed on to, to Richard and he's doing a, a, a fantastic job. And, 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 and Reagan, who's, who's um, in charge in the States, is also you know, doing a wonderful job. Well, so let's so let's talk about this. So let's talk about how all of this leads to Pookie and 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 mm-hmm. t- tell us quickly. You, so you sell sofa.com. Tell me how you how you decide lighting is is what you want to get into next. I think I've been rumbling. Um, lighting had been rumbling around my mind for quite a long time, to be honest. Mm. So at one point, I thought about making having a, a subcategory at, at sofa.com of lighting. So we would be sofa.com, and and we'd you know because we had loads and loads of customers, we could you know why not sell lights. But actually, in the same way that Sofa.com was an absolutely dedicated sofa specialist, I thought it was better to, to, to set up a company which completely focused on, on lights. And, and so I thought, well, let's, let's, let's go ahead and, and, and set up a lighting brand. Um, I wasn't able to buy lighting.com or lamps.com. So, <laughs> so, those those found, are already taken. Darn it. <laughs> those are already taken. So I, set up, so I found the name pookie.com that was available i had to pay a little bit for it but but it worked very nicely because my my lovely old grandmother was called pookie so it all seemed to work quite nicely so <laughs> so we named the business after after her and and as i say the the, the scope for product is it, it is infinite there's no question um and, and 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 it's a fun challenge so so we had to we kicked off and we had to find factories who could help us so that was that, that took a while of planning out yeah, and today, so part of the reason why we're we're talking is part of the collection that you've introduced is this series of of cordless lights here in the in the U.S. and and many people have likely been to restaurants or or been to hotels where these these lights just seem to be popping up in in so many more places and and you and I were talking recently about how the 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 cordless aspect is is sort of freeing lighting in 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 a way we were we were confined perhaps to the wall or to the ceiling and and now suddenly light can can travel in a whole new way and in part thanks to better batteries and the ability to recharge and all of that but but tell me about that well it, it, yeah when you say the freedom thing it is it's 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 unleashing us it's it's look if you if you if you go back a couple of centuries and see how how people lit their house look you know, back in the early 19th century, well, mid 19th century, the only way people lit their houses was by candlelight and by oil light. And then one day, some um, clever wag uh, invented this this thing, electricity. And we've been banned by this um, for, well, ever since. And the way we decorate and, and light our homes and our spaces has been entirely determined by where the power point is available. And they tend to be to the side of the room. So 
You are a slave to the wire. You're a slave to the cord. And so all lights are, are to the edge of the room or to the ceiling. Um, and now, because of tech, because of brilliant batteries, and because because of just the, the way the world is going, is, is cordless lights have come in. Now, cordless lights, they've, they've been around for, for a little while, but and, and the revolution is only just starting. But they are a, a wonderful, liberating way to you know use light in a different way you can you can bug it you can bug it in the middle of the table you can bug it on the edge of your bath you can take them outside um you can have light wherever you want whenever you want you know i think we launched our first one about three years ago we've now got a reasonably large range of cordless lights and and and, and we're about to launch a a considerably larger range of cordless lights and 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 we are, we are, you know, to use the poker terminology, we're, we're going all in on cordless because I think <laughs> it is the future. I, I, well, I think it's a very important part of the future. It doesn't just have to be a table light. You know, we'll have a range of picture lights. The picture lights, Dennis, are wonderful because, you know, if you're in a, if you, if you're in a rental house, for example, you can't start chopping up the walls and 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 and, right. and, and add, you know, wires in. Or indeed, if you're if you're just want to put a, a picture, you know, hang a picture in a particular part of a room where it's a little bit inconvenient you simply put two little pins in the wall and you will put a rechargeable picture light up and and i've got a, i've got a couple of samples at, at, at home which are they entirely changed the way i like the room and plenty of wall lights and wall sconces all rechargeable so those types of lights are sort of new tech and it's it's really exciting well as, as you say i mean it it, it seems like Early days in this, and and that this is this is just going to going to spread and and be uh, somewhat revolutionary. Explain to me a little bit the the technology that has made this possible, or or, or, or much more possible in the past few years. Batteries are smaller and they're more powerful, and they're and they and, and and they recharge more efficiently. It's it's it really comes down to, to, to a battery in the same way as with solar lighting. You know, we we are just developing a range of solar lights, but the the issue with solar technology over the years has been it just the sun hasn't been you haven't been able to create a cell which has been able to soak up enough light and and, re, and charge up the cell enough to be able to emit uh, enough light to make the light worthwhile. So I mean, there are plenty of solar lights out there, but they 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 they, they just gently glow. They don't they don't they're not that functional. But with with batteries that you were able to recharge from the wall or from a from any power source, they're getting better and better. Um, and I'm sure that we will see over the course of the next few years, you know, you 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 will have lights, rechargeable lights, which which you which will be able to do 50, 60 hours at, at a time. Now that's pretty remarkable. The, I mean, the the lights that we have at the moment are able to do, depending on how bright you put them but they, they, they'll do about they should do about 20 hours of light now and obviously they're i say obviously they're they're dimmable so you know if you've got them on a low dim then they'll probably do more than that um i mean the tech's all in the battery i want to talk about you coming to the u.s because this is this is a, a, a big endeavor for you and i want to talk about it in, in part in the context of the entrepreneurial experience that you've had with Sofa.com specifically, for example, you became obviously very knowledgeable about internet marketing and and about driving people to your to your site, and 
the landscape is very different today and, and direct-to-consumer companies, and I know you're also focused on designers here in the States considerably, but let, let's let's call it D2C just for the, the simplicity of it. It's a much more challenging landscape. The algorithms have changed dramatically. Being able to just throw money at Facebook or Google uh, doesn't seem to to render the same results. How do you how do you look at the the, the landscape from a digital marketing perspective? Well, I, I'll just rewind back to when we started Sofa.com, which was in sort of two thousand and six, when the landscape was entirely different. And, and we, again, we, as I say, I repeat that we knew very little about it, but, you know, we realized that there was an opportunity, this thing called pay-per-click, we could give Google some money and they might, they might, in return, they might give us some traffic. But back then, it was a wonderfully uncompetitive world. So, you know, to, to, to buy this traffic through Google was, was comparatively incredibly cheap. Um, and you've got these, all these traders shouting their ways. It's noisy. It's so noisy. And how do you get heard? And how do you get seen? Um, and today, it's it's genuinely very difficult, and and you've got to keep up to speed with, as you say, that you know all the new algorithms that, that Google or, or or Meta throw at you, and you know we we use agencies to help us do that by and large. We've got a few, you know, we, we got we got a, we got a really good team in house, but actually, when it comes to spending the money on 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 marketing through through you know the the, the e commerce marketing. Uh, we we do use agencies, and and uh, but again, that's another area of proper wild west because it's unregulated. Yeah, you know, a- anyone could put up their hand and go, "Oh, I know what I'm doing." Do they? I've worked with vast numbers of people who genuinely don't know what they're doing. So you need to build a lot of trust with the people who you through whom you you know um, rely on. I mean, the first thing I always say, look, there there, there are two aspects to this. First of all produce a beautiful product. If you don't have a great product, forget it, go home. Your product's got to be fantastic. And ultimately, it's got to be a product which really, if you were prepared to allow it to sell itself, could sell itself. So, you know, which could just go on word of mouth. People will go, hey, I just saw this, you know, whether it's a pretty light or whatever it may be. You have to be obsessed about the product and you have to be confident that the product that you've made is really worthy of being sold. And the next part of it, is you've got to be, you know, preferably if you want to push the market, push the business reasonably fast, you need to market it well. You need to think very carefully about how much money you're going to spend marketing it and, and exactly where those pennies or those cents that you're going to be spending on the marketing, exactly where they go and who you're going to give them to. And it's a very, very difficult subject because you've always got to be aware there are thousands of people trying to do exactly the same thing as you every single day. And, you know, when I headed off the high point, the, you know, the, 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 the interior show sure. in Carolina last year, I, I tell you, I looked at it and I, I realized just how many people were trying to sell lights in, in the States. And it was quite sobering. But, you know, it's a, it's a challenge that we're really looking forward to. As a, I'm really confident of the product. If there's one thing I, I get properly immersed in, in the business, it is the product. Because, as I say, without great product, you don't have a business. Well, it, it's interesting that you mentioned high point because, I mean, I can imagine someone going to High Point, and after seeing the incredible array of product for sale there, just just going back home and saying, "Okay, you know what? Let's let's wrap this up." What was I thinking? <laughs> look, look, at, look at all the product that's there, right? I mean, it's daunting. It, it, it was daunting. It was fascinating. Yeah, you could easily just 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 shout to High Point, burst into tears, uh, and, and, and turn around and do a forest exactly. dump and just run, run and just escape. But we didn't. 
the, the, the truth is, Dennis, we actually finally, finally launched the business yesterday. Uh, well, you know, I mentioned that moment when you all look at each other and go, are we ready to turn on the site? So we turned on the site yesterday. We're incredibly excited about it. We've done a lot of research. We've spoken to vast numbers of people. But ultimately, do we know if the business is going to work? No, we have we we don't. We've just got a hunch that we it might. So it's 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 still scary, Dennis. <laughs> yeah, I know, of course. I, I I mean, and 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 here you are, just just literally turning it on in in the states, as you say, after all this research, after all of the conversations that you've had, and all of this time that you've spent developing partnerships with uh, Morris and Company and uh, GBJ Baker yeah. and right and, yeah. and others um, to to uh, this incredible array of shades and everything else that you that you offer but not not knowing for certain uh, if the whole darn thing is going to work in a very crowded marketplace in the in the well, US as I say you could you could do all the planning in the world and you know everything you know all the vital statistics of the business you know this you know that you know everything there's one number you don't know, which is the number on the top line. It's how many people are actually going to buy the product. And you don't know it until you, until you try it. And in a way, that is part of the drug of the business as well, because it's just, it's crazy exciting. Um, and, 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 you know, the great news is, I, I'm, I'm glad to tell you that a few people did buy life. <laughs> there were some orders. We turned it there on. Were some orders. There, there were some orders. In, in in thinking about how you were presenting this this cordless light story. So part of what I think is so fun about Pookie is all the colorful shades and the vast array of, of choices and things that you can mix and, and, and really have fun with. Uh, but also, I assume this this cordless light story, regardless of what percentage of your sales actually end up being cordless lights and we'll and we'll see it seemed like that was a wonderful hook there did seem to be this this intense interest in that specific part of the market yes yeah the research did did show that the way we do them is a little bit different actually so most cordless lights that you buy um you buy as a single piece um they they tend to have sort of um an integral shade and they, they often look like sort of well, mushrooms, should we say? So there'll be blobs which will which will emanate light, but they they, they tend to be a, a single piece. Ours, by and large, not all of them, but but most of them, you can you can chop and change the shades that you choose to put on them. So we aim to do that right from the start. We you know we we knew that cordless lights were going to be quite you know an exciting project to get our teeth sucked into, but we wanted to do it the pookie way. We wanted to add. A bit of fun, a bit of color, a bit of pizzazz, and a bit of choice, actually. So, and just to make it different to what everyone else was doing. So, the fact that we can do that, and, and no one else really does does it that way. But as I said, I'm, I'm I'm keeping my cards relatively close to my chest about the new range of lights that we've got coming out in about two or three months because, well, I'm ridiculously excited about them. They are. Staggeringly beautiful. It's it's without a doubt the best range of lights we've ever launched, and I I I can't wait to show them. And hopefully, we'll show them at High Point. Actually, oh really? So is that what you're planning to do? Show them at High Point? We'll show them at High Point. Yeah, yeah, we will. So have you taken a have you taken a booth, or are you partnering with somebody there? Or uh, we've taken a booth. Yeah, we've taken a booth in okay uh, one of the main halls, and we've got about I think we've got about a thousand square foot. Wow. Eye-wateringly expensive. Um, I can um, imagine. But, you know, c c considering we're only there for four or five days, but <laughs> yes. but uh, but you know, 
we need to let the world know. And and Indeed. you know, as I said earlier on, you've got your you've got your marketing bucks, and you've just got to determine who you're going to give them to. And and we just took the choice that we were going to give a few of them, or quite a lot of them, to quite to a lot of them. High point. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, well, well, that's very exciting. So I, I look forward to seeing that. Okay, well, I, I can't thank you enough for making the time to, to talk with me, and I'm, I'm so glad to, to get to spend time. Dennis, it's been a, a proper pleasure. I've really enjoyed it. All right, we're getting to the end of the show here, but before we go, we'd like to take a quick second to highlight anything going on in the industry that might have caught our eye. Fred, what caught your eye? Banana Republic Home caught my eye this week, Dennis. <laughs> well, you know, I think probably most listeners will remember that Banana Republic unveiled sort of a home side brand, BR Home, uh, last year. Uh, it was met with some skepticism by some commentators in the industry, uh, but they, they took it very sincerely and they built it up to, you know, they, they opened a flagship in LA and put a lot of product out into the market. So um, I was surprised to see the news in, in Women's Wear Daily that uh, apparently there was quote unquote market speculation that they were going to shut it down and and banana republic had i maybe had to put out a statement but they put out a statement saying no 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 we're still doing this we're still invested in this so i was sort of surprised around the tenor of that like was there really an impression that they were going to start it and kill it after five months Uh, you know i don't know i I agree it was it was an oddly defensive comment it felt like what no we're not going away uh but who said you were yeah i know maybe that was a little bit of media gotchaism i'll have to i'll have to reread the article but it just i'm curious about how that will do you know i mean i think like people were were rightly skeptical simply because the timing is so odd it's you know it's a it's a bad time to get into retail furniture. I, I understand the thesis behind it, but uh, I am genuinely curious about whether it can be a hit for them in the long run. Fashion to home uh, crossovers have typically been a, a rocky road, so we'll keep an eye on that one. No, 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 I agree. And, and I think one of the reasons perhaps that people were skeptical was the remarkable similarity from BR Home to the next thing we're going to yes. talk about, which is, uh, which is RH. And I wanted to raise RH in the context of them dropping their new outdoor catalog, book, however they want to refer to it, um, and, and partially because I, I wanted to just look at it as almost this moment in time, the fact that a furniture company has a more than 350-page catalog of a category that used to be referred to as patio furniture yes. or casual, casual yeah. right? I mean, <laughs> My favorite euphemism. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I mean, it. in a way, it just seemed like such a statement of how far this category has come and how many different kinds of products are in this massive catalog. And if I'm in the outdoor furniture business, I'm, I'm thinking, wow, that is a pretty impressive range of, of offerings from our age. But more importantly, I'm just thinking in this post-COVID world where the outdoor category has grown so huge, no, no better reminder of that than just the the enormity of this RH outdoor book. My God, outdoor furniture is a huge market. I know. Gosh, that's like 
like their outdoor catalog is bigger than the offering of you know many entire businesses. It's I think it's also a reminder of just how the industry gets you know tired of something before the consumer does. You know what I mean? It's like you see a bunch of outdoor brands launch. I feel like we already got bored of that around you know 2022. All right, we get it. Outdoors popular, but like no, it's very popular. That change is here to stay, and there's probably a lot more room for growth and a lot more opportunity for designers. So uh, take uh, take that as a signal to get outside. Well, when the weather uh, heats up again. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. But I, I think you're absolutely right. That definitely is the takeaway. All right, that's all the time we have today. Thanks so much for listening. If you want to keep up with the latest news, browse job listings, or take a workshop, visit us online at businessofhome.com. If you want to get in touch with the show, write to us at podcast at businessofhome.com. This episode was produced by Fred Nicolaus and Caroline Burke and edited by Michael Castaneda. I'm Dennis Scully. Have a great weekend, and we'll be back with you on Monday.